born. That he was born. Amen? He was born two, over 2,000 years ago. And guess who he came for? Yeah, he came for the shepherds. He came for those that were there in that day. But guess what? He came for you and me. And he's still coming for people. For all eternity, God has come for us that will put our trust in him. So in this Christmas season, I just pray that God has great things. How many believe that this morning? Okay. How many believe he has great things? Yeah. Well, I've been saying Merry Christmas all morning. I'll have to be honest, it's Merry Almost Christmas, right? Not quite here, almost. And with that said, let me ask you a question, put you to the test. How many of you have already got your Christmas shopping totally and completely finished? Anybody? A few of you? That's pretty awesome. You put a lot of us to shame. How many of us, how many of us are rushing out of here right after church? Hopefully not before church, but to finish your Christmas shopping. Well, we'll be praying for you guys. Amen? How about this one? How many have regifted a present this year? Anybody regifted? Be honest. Hey, I think that's amazing. Praise God for you. What awesome stewardship. Dave Ramsey would have been proud, right? I mean, he would. I think it's great. But we're wrapping up our sermon series. We're in the last week of our Christmas sermon series called The Family Tree of Jesus, where basically we've been doing what we do every Christmas. We're talking about the birth of the Messiah. Um, but most of the time when you think of Christmas, I'll have to be honest, my mind goes to Luke's gospel. Because as I said last week, I think Luke does a far better job of describing Christmas I mean, Luke's where we get our nativity scene. Luke's where we get uh, uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lying in a manger. We have the angels. Uh, we have the shepherds. The whole nine yards. So Luke does an amazing job with his writings and the way he lays it out. But Matthew, on the other hand, when he starts telling his Christmas story, if you've been here in the past few weeks, he just starts out with this long list of hard-to-pronounce names, this genealogy uh, of Jesus. But he actually takes us behind the scenes uh, and tells us some stories of, well, actually some kind of messy stories about some people's lives who were pretty messed up and broken that were in the genealogy of Christ. Matthew's telling us about Jesus' family tree, the uh, ancestors of Christ. And when you look at these stories, if you do like most of us and just breeze right past them and their names, you're going to miss a whole lot. Because there's a whole lot behind the scenes in these stories. But before I get into some more of that, I want to talk about how the Bible uh, introduces us to Jesus over 700 years before he was even born in the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there's a really interesting description. It says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Kind of an interesting way to put that, right? Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. I don't know if any of you live out in the country or mow with a mower out in the country, but I've got a pull behind mower, and sometimes I'm mowing the fence lines and around our property, and I've hit a stump before. Let me just tell you, when you hit a stump with your mower, nine times out of ten, stump wins. Amen? Stump wins just about every time. Then why would the Bible say, out of the stump will grow a shoot? When you think of stump, it's not exactly a picture of life, Right? I mean, it is that nobody walks into the forest and sees a stump and says, I wonder what's going to grow there. Nobody walks out and sees a stump and says, I wonder what kind of fruit's going to grow on that tree. We don't say that because for the most part, a stump is something that's basically dead. It's lifeless. There's no hope or little hope in a stump, especially one that's been there for a long time. 
You might say a stump is simply something that once was there and is no more there. Amen? A stump is a, uh, a picture of something that once was but is no more. It's a remaining, something remaining of what once was. Anyway, what I'm trying to get it at is a stump is not a picture of hope at all when you think of a stump. And yet, why does Isaiah choose it to introduce us to the coming Messiah? And he says, out of the stump of David's family will come a shoot. What in the world is he talking about? Why would he say that? Well, in this series, as I said, we're talking about Jesus' family tree. And we talked about how when Matthew started up his genealogy of Jesus, he included people in his genealogy that no one else would in that day. He included women. He included outsiders and foreigners. He included notorious sinners. He just includes them all. And there were a lot of bad actors in the family tree of Jesus. So I'm just going to read the first six verses here. Um, there's several names, and I want you to spay, pay special attention to the parentheses because they're a big part of this message. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her and that story last week. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Well, we've talked about her before. Many of you know her story. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Now, I want you to watch this part especially uh, close. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Did you catch that? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. I'll say that's at least one way to put it. I'll say that's the nice way to put it. Because if any of you know that story, it's a really messy, messy story. It's a really messed up deal. I'll get into a little bit more of that in a minute. But David is primarily known for two big events in his life. One we all know for sure. David is known for taking down Goliath, right? But David is also known for uh, also sleeping with another man's wife. Sleeping with another man's wife. And we see this in this list, and we find a big, big mess. So when we go into this book of Matthew, and we see this long genealogy, this long list of names, it's so easy for us to just skip over it or zone out in it. I mean, not even pay attention to it. But for the first century Jewish people, this story would have been compelling. It would have actually been stunning. And if you would have taken this list and read it aloud in that Jewish crowd, there would have been audible gasps from the people because they knew the people in the story. They also knew uh, the problems in the story. They knew all the situations uh, that were going on. I can throw out some names to you, and you'd probably recognize them, some famous sports characters, famous popular pro professional athletes. I could throw their names out. I could uh, name some actors, actresses, celebrities, People that we say we know, we really don't know them, but we're familiar with them. Well, the whole thing is, in the first century, when Matthew started throwing out these names in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the Jewish crowd would have been familiar with every one of these names. They would have also been familiar with the stories behind these names. I am guarantee you they were at the coffee shops talking about these names, amen, because they all knew the names and they knew the stories behind the names. But here's, why, or here's what I think the difference is between Matthew's introduction of the Messiah and Luke's introduction. I'll say Luke tells us what happened, but Matthew tells us how it happened. 
And I would say to that first century Jewish crowd, when they heard these names mentioned by Matthew as he starts out his Christmas story, they meant more to them than Luke's gospel. Not that Luke's gospel was bad at all, but they could relate to these names that Matthew had given them and associate the stories behind those names. I said all that to say it all of a sudden helps us to understand why Isaiah would say 700 years before, out of the stump of David's family line, would come a shoot. But what's he mean by the stump? Well, when you read through this long list of names, it kind of gives us some clues to what that stump might be. We've looked at a whole group of people in the genealogy of Christ that were failures, that were flawed, that were messed up and broken people. Today, I want to look at one of the most, and it might surprise you, but one of the most was a guy by the name of King David. King David, the king who didn't always behave himself like a king. Amen? He really didn't. We see that David many times made a big, big mess of his life. And look how Matthew describes his part of this genealogy. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Many of you already know this story, so I'm not going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it for sake of time. If you want to, you can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But just to paraphrase it, one day David sends his troops off to battle. He usually would go with his troops and fight in the battle, but this time he decides to stay home and just chill. He decides to stay home, and one evening he's walking on his palace roof, just looking out over his kingdom, and he spies a beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba taking a bath on her roof. And let's just say he got the uh, tingly winglies, I guess. And he called her to the palace. He called her to the palace. And long story short, and I'll skip a lot of details, but she gets pregnant. So David has a big mess on his hands, a really big mess. Because her husband Uriah is out on the battlefield fighting for David, fighting for Israel. So he says, okay, I'm going to call Uriah to come home from the battlefield. Spend some time with your wife, Uriah. Uh, you deserve a break. Take a break and then go back in a few days. Well, the next day, uh, David finds out that Uriah didn't go home to his wife. He slept outside the king's palace door to protect the king. And David says, why in the world didn't you go home to your wife? And Uriah, being a man of integrity, said, how in the world can I go home to the comforts of my home when my men are fighting on the battlefield? So David says, okay, just give it another day. Uh, give it another day, and David, being the man of God that he must have been, gets Uriah really drunk. I mean really drunk, and tells him to go home to his wife. Of course, what David is doing is trying to cover up his own sin. He's trying to make it look like Bathsheba got pregnant by her own husband instead of by David. But again, David finds out to his surprise that Uriah didn't go home to his wife that night either. He camped out outside the palace door to protect the king. This guy that had slept with his wife, even though he doesn't know that. But David says, why in the world wouldn't you go home to your wife? And he says, how could I go home to the comforts of my home and to my wife when my men are out there sweating and bleeding and dying on the battlefield? At this point in my mind, as I'm reading this story, I'm thinking King David. I'm thinking Uriah. King David, Uriah. King David, Uriah. I'm thinking Uriah maybe ought to be the king. Amen? because he's the only righteous guy in this story so far. 
So David, he then sends a message to Joab, which is Uriah's commander, out on the battlefield. And he tells him to put Uriah and his men up front in the battle, on the front lines. He tells them to put them there, and when the battle intensifies, he says, then I want you to withdraw all of your troops except Uriah, leave him alone and exposed. Joab would have read this, and he would have realized this was a death sentence for Uriah. Then he gives a note to Uriah to give to Joab. So in a sense, Uriah is taking his death sentence to Joab. So Uriah and his men in the story pursue the enemy all the way to the enemy's walls of the city that they're trying to take. And then Joab calls back the soldiers, leaves Uriah there all by himself, exposed, and long story short, he gets killed by an archer's arrow that came off the wall. David basically, it's hard to swallow, but murders Uriah, her husband, so he can have Bathsheba for his own. That's exactly what happened. I don't even want to believe that, but that's what happened. And without any sort of guilt or remorse, he takes her home into his household. He marries her, and he thinks he got by with one. He thinks, my sin will never be found out. Nobody's ever going to know. Let me tell you, do you realize your sin is always found out? God always knows your sin. He knows David's sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 21, it says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So God's not going to let him get by with it. There are consequences to our sins. So God sends a guy, a prophet, by the name of Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I want you to go and I want you to confront King David in his sin, which would have really put uh, uh, Nathan the prophet in a very precarious situation to be confronting the king head on in his sin. How many of you have ever had to confront someone that's in an authority figure over you? It's not easy to do, kind of a hard task to take on. So Nathan comes to the king, And he's like, David's probably going to kill me. David's probably either going to kill me or he's going to lie to my face as I confront him if I confront him head on. So he comes up with this brilliant idea. I know what I'll do. I'll kind of hit him from the side. I'll kind of uh, tell him a story and try to get into his heart from the side door, which he does. He said, David, let me tell you about a story. This is the story he starts. Chapter 12, verse 1. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, David hears this story, and he says, wait a minute, that's happening in my kingdom, not on my watch, and he goes ballistic. David takes that story and swallows it hook, line, and sinker. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he, had such, he did such a thing and had no pity. David's furious. David is furious and says that man's going to pay back four times the amount that he took. Right then and there, I can't help but seeing Nathan, his eyes welling up with tears because he can't believe that David is so blinded by his own sin that he can't see it in his own life. Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
You are the man. I can just imagine Nathan getting him by the shoulders and saying, David, look at me. Look at me. You are the man. You're the guy that took the sheep. You're the guy that took the sheep. And David, in that moment, finally sees it for what it is, and the, shame, the weight of that shame and guilt falls totally upon his shoulders. And he realizes his secret wasn't a secret at all. If you know the story, David and Bathsheba, that child that she had gotten pregnant with by David, ends up dying shortly after birth. But they have another son. And his name is Solomon. We're all familiar with Solomon, right? He turned out to be the next king. He also was known to be the wisest and richest man uh, to ever, ever live. But he ended up loving cr created things more than he did his creator, you might say. But the kingdom is in the hands of these kings for a period of time by David, by Solomon and their sons. Then years after ungodly behavior, you might say, the kingdom splits. You've got a northern kingdom. You've got a southern kingdom. I'm getting to my point. <laughs> And so for over 600 years, nobody sits on David's throne. Nobody sits on David's throne. You might say David's throne becomes a stump. It's dead, it's lifeless, no hope, no vision, just death. And if you ever read the Psalms, I think there are so many Psalms that David has written that they are written out of him basically going back to that moment, going back to that moment of despair, realizing what he had done. He goes back to that place where he feels the guilt. He feels the weight of all that shame. But then he doesn't just stay there. He stops compromising. He stops making excuses. How many of us have ever been to that point in our life or that place in our life? I know I have. I've had moments in my life where I've been sort of lying to myself, thinking that I'm in a better place than I really am, especially spiritually sometimes. But God in His mercy and grace comes to me God in His mercy and grace has even sent people to me to have a loving conversation to help me get back on track. Do you realize, I believe that's what God was doing with Nathan. He loved David with all of his heart, just like David was supposed to love God with all of his heart. God loved him and wanted the best for David. So he didn't just throw him, give up on him. But how many of us feel that way? When we get in situations, we just feel hopeless. We feel like things are just nothing but dead, dry, lifeless, and a stump. We've given up hope. And some of you maybe have been where I've been before, and you think, how could God work through me? How could God use me now? This is hopeless. I don't know how God can take anyone that's as messed up and as broken, as imperfect as I am, and do anything with me. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I'm almost guaranteeing you that's where David was in this situation. We'll see this in Matthew chapter 1, and we know that because David's list, listed in these names. In the midst of his shame, brokenness, and sin, God still had a plan for David. You realize that? So in the midst of our shame, brokenness, and sin, God still has a plan for our lives. Through all these stories of Jesus' ancestors, we see all sorts of problems. We see uh, challenges in relationships, uh, to say the least. We see manipulators. Remember Jacob, he was a manipulator. We see connivers. We see cheats and thieves. We see a whole lot of unmet expectations in the lineage of Christ. We see a whole lot of feelings of hopelessness. It's all in there. And think about this. Hundreds of years before the Messiah was to be born, it really looked like Jesus' ancestors were going to blow it. They were going to mess it all up. It looked as dead and lifeless and hopeless as a stump. But then Isaiah comes along 700 years before he's to be born, Chapter 11, verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Well, if you haven't realized it by now, that's King David. That's, 
from the stump of Jesse is King David. From his roots, a branch. That's important too, will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, so that him, that means the shoot is a person. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. How many remember between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and stepping over into Matthew chapter 1, there were 400 years. A period of 400 years. 400 years where God didn't speak to his people. He was silent for those 400 years. The people felt abandoned. The people felt forgotten. But the only thing that they had was the promise that Isaiah had made 700 years before that said, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. How many of you have ever seen uh, something happen out in the woods and you see a stump that looks dead and lifeless, but all of a sudden you see something, life. You see a sprig of life growing up out of that stump. We've got a picture of that. That's an actual stump. You would think that stump was dead, but no, all of a sudden you've got life popping up out of that stump. So while you look at that picture, let me read that again. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. And the awesome thing about that shoot, not that one, but the one he's talking about, that shoot has a name. And his name is Jesus. A child who would be born to that bewildered couple, Mary and Joseph, in that manger in Bethlehem. And he's saying, I believe God is telling every one of us down through history that out of the challenging, messy relationships and failures of men and women out there trying to find their own way and doing things their way, and out of the hopelessness of sinful men, will come a Savior. God's going to come through humanity. Jesus came from imperfect people for imperfect people to continue to work through imperfect people. Amen? He came from imperfect people for imperfect people to work through imperfect people. That's actually the whole message of Christmas. Do you realize that? Christmas was never meant to be this per perfect picturesque scene. Uh, we like to think of it that way. We like to see Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus all tucked away in the manger. We love to see that everything is so perfect, but the truth is it was far from perfect. That whole time period was a big mess. I love what Isaiah says in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I've read this over and over again, but as I was studying for this, a few words just jumped off the page in my heart. It says, for a child is born to us. I want to just focus on the to us part. For a child was born not just to anybody, but to us. A son was given to us. And then it says, and the government, and he's definitely not talking about our government. We could use a whole lot of help there. <laughs> but he's talking about the orders of this world will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace, he says, will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice. And he could have stopped right there, but he doesn't. He says he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. When I read that part, I'm thinking, wow, what grace, what mercy. God knew exactly what kind of man David had been. God knew exactly what he had done. He had seen his sin. He didn't have to include him at all in that past, uh, last verse, but he did. Even knowing the failures and the sins of David, he could have left him out, but he didn't. You know what that shows me? The gracious second chance giving God that we serve. Amen? 
The gracious, merciful, second chance kind of God that we serve. I believe God is saying, hey, I know David's mistakes. I know he's uh, far from perfect. I know he's messed up time and time again. And I know his whole situation could have brought everything to a screeching halt. But I believe our God would say, I specialize in things that seem broken, dead, lifeless, and hopeless. And I breathe life into those things. So I'm just saying if he did it for David, guess what? He can do it for us. If he did it for David in his situation, he can do it for us. And I think that's the whole reason he even does it this way. is to help us to know that we can't do anything on our own power at all. It all comes through God's power. Do you realize God is at his best in our weakness? He's at his best in our weakness. God is at his best in our worst moments. Go back to the genealogy thing, this long list of names. God worked through and sent his son through a whole list of far from perfect people. Imperfect, broken, sinful people. And I believe God is telling every one of us in this Christmas season, I just want you to come to me. I just want you to be real with me. I just want you to be honest with me. He's saying you don't have to sweep anything under the rug, just come as you are. Christmas is all about the light invading the darkness. Amen? Christmas is all about the hopelessness, hope invading the hopelessness of this world. I love what David says in Psalms 119, verse 49. He says, remember your promise to me. Remember, he's talking to God. He's praying to God. God, remember your promise to me. It's my only hope. Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all of my troubles. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about a promise. Christmas is actually about a promise that was made 700 years before uh, Christ was even to be born. And I'm thinking of this. If Jesus came once and fulfilled his promise, guess what? He'll do it again. Not that Jesus ever has to be born again, or over again, and all that has to happen. But whatever you're dealing with, if God has made you a promise, he can fulfill that promise. Christmas is all about God doing unexpected things at unexpected times through unexpected people. Amen? Did you catch that? God doing unexpected things at unexpected times through unexpected people. You know, like David thought he had covered up that sin, we can't cover up our sin. God's not surprised by our sin, though. Do you realize that? Your spouse might be, your family, your friends, whoever might be, but God's not. He saw it coming a long time ago. He made provision for it. He's not stumped by your situation. He saw that coming a long time ago. He made a way for that. And God is not challenged by your situation, no matter what it is right now. He's seen it all along. He saw it before it got there. And he says, just bring it to me. He says, just watch this and see what I can do with this situation. Because he provided an answer. And again, that answer has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born that fateful night in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. When you think about it, it's actually a sprig of new life, a shoot of new life springing up out of what they thought and what we would think would be a stump. Lifeless and hopeless. I believe we need to remember that, not just during Christmas. But all year long, God is the hope of the season. God wants to work in and through our lives, not so we can just keep it for ourselves, but so that we can pass it on to others. Amen? So that we can give them that same sense of hope. So I was thinking about this last week. What do I want you to take away from this whole sermon series? What do I want you to take away from this message? And the last thing that I want you to take away is for you just to say, wow, that was a good history lesson. Wow, we learned a lot of names about Jesus' family tree that we didn't know before. I don't want you to just say, God gave us a look at what God did then. 
Because if you're only looking at what God did then, then you're going to miss what God wants to do now. Amen? You're going to miss what God wants to do now in your life. Because if you really realize it, the whole point to this message in this series and this uh, text is that we also belong to the family tree of Jesus. If you've accepted Christ, you belong to the family tree of Christ. We walk right alongside of some of those uh, not-so-perfect people. Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Rahab, David, and all the other imperfect people. But I believe in this moment, God is saying, it's your turn. Bring your mess to me. Bring your mess to me. Bring your hopeless to me, hopelessness to me. Bring your stumps of a situation to God, that thing that you think is hopeless and lifeless. Bring it to Him and see what He can do. I believe He can do amazing things. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in many of your lives because God is still God. God is still sitting on the throne. He's still in control. He's still in power. But when He does a miracle in your life, He doesn't do it just so it can happen and be done. He does it so that you and I can take that miracle and that sense of hope and pass it on to the world around us. Amen? Not to keep it to ourselves. Could you stand to your feet this morning? God doesn't want us to keep the Christmas miracle to ourselves. But when it comes to our situations, He just says, Comes, come to me just as you are. Not as who you want to be or pretend to be, but just as you are. Then I believe God is saying, look what I can do through your imperfections. I don't know about you, but that pumps me up. That fires me up to realize that God can use my failures, which have been more than I could ever count, my imperfections, and do something amazing with it. And I don't want to walk through this holiday season and miss the real meaning of hope. And I don't want you to walk through this holiday season and miss that meaning of hope. So in these last few moments that we have together, I just want you to bow your head and heart before God. I just want you to get honest with God and open yourself up before God. I don't know where you stand with God. I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I'm under no illusion that we're all tracking with God with a perfect spiritual life because I can guarantee you we're not. That's why this moment is probably the most important moment of this whole service. i just like you to open up your heart right now to the King of Kings. Jesus was born in a manger, a baby, but he didn't stay a manger. He didn't stay a baby in the manger. He rose up to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. So this morning, I just want your heart to agree with this prayer that I'm going to pray. Lord God, I pray that you would reinforce these truths, the truths of this message into our hearts and our minds today. Lord God, we invite you into our messes. Lord God, I pray you would meet us in our stumps of situations. Help us to see, Lord God, what you, the miracle-working God, can do with our brokenness, with our fears, our worries, our confusion. Father, we come to you right now, and I pray today someone that's in here would find hope that came in here without hope. I pray that someone here that walked in darkness would find your light. That someone who came in here feeling hopeless about their situation would find the kind of hope and that they would realize that kind of hope can only come from you. Father, I pray that you would help us to experience today like never before the power of your awesome, mighty, holy spirit. Help us to see that your hope is really the essence of Christmas. And Father, I thank you for this long list of confusing names in Matthew chapter 1. 
And I thank you for the stories behind these names because it brings us hope. That if you can work through them, these broken, flawed people, you can work through anyone and you can work through us. There's no one too far gone. There's no one too broken. There's no one too hopeless that you can't reach out and touch, that you can't reach out and save, that you can't reach out and use. Father, I thank you most of all that the Christmas story isn't just a story. It's a promise. And we hold on to that promise today. We thank you for that promise. But most of all, we as a congregation thank you for the greatest gift ever given to humanity, the gift of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks. We give you praise. In your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. God bless you all.